Well, friends, the text that we're going to consider this morning is at the very end of Mark chapter 2. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark for several months now, and we're going to continue, and we're coming to the, the close of chapter 2. And I would, uh, I'm going to read it out loud, and I would ask you please to stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. I'll read it, and then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond together. Thanks be to God. Now, one Sabbath, he, that is the Lord Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. There is a controversy in this text, as all of the texts we've been studying recently in Mark 2. The Lord Jesus does something, or says something. The scribes and Pharisees object, and then he responds to them in a way that silences their objection. Today, this has to do with the Sabbath, and and really, beyond just specifically the Sabbath, it has to do with the law of God, the commandments of God. And it is a relevant issue. It's always been a relevant issue in the church. How is it that the law of God and the gospel of God work together? How is it that they are reconciled. Do they need to be reconciled? Charles Spurgeon famously said when when someone asked him the question, how do you reconcile the law and the gospel? He said they don't need to be reconciled. Friends don't need to be reconciled. But how do we, Christians, trusting in the gospel of grace, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, as an act of grace, How do we understand our relationship with God's commandments? This passage will help us in that regard. By considering this passage together, we we will be helped in our understanding. First, that God has given us His commandments for our good and for our blessing. The Sabbath specifically, uh, but all of His commandments. As I said, we are in a series of controversies here in Mark chapter 2. This one and the one following in the beginning of chapter 3 pertain to the Sabbath specifically. There are two controversies involving Jesus' behavior on the Sabbath day. And we're going to look at this first episode today and the second episode next Sunday at the beginning of chapter 3. There are some principles that tie the two together. And we're going to consider one of those principles this morning and one next week. So in terms of our progress through the actual text, I think we're we're going to leave verse 28 
to be part of our consideration of the passage next week. And we're going to give our attention to this principle laid out in verse 27. But that'll make sense as we, as we go along. Now, <clears throat> as in most of these episodes here, the controversial behavior that Jesus engages in is not on the surface all that controversial. We read in verse 23, On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, you remember, of course, that we're talking uh, not about a contemporary environment like the one that we're living in. We're talking about a couple thousand years ago in the ancient Near East where uh, things like cars, trucks, Uber, electronic rental scooters were not available to people. And in fact, paved roads were not available to people. So when you're getting from one place to another, you were walking. And sometimes when you were walking, you would cut through somebody's yard or their grain field. And as the Lord Jesus and his disciples were passing through these grain fields, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. You've got to imagine there's this, these, these tall grain plants, and they're going by, and evidently some of them were, were ripe, and his disciples began to, uh, to take the, the heads of grain and probably rub them between their hands to separate the, the chaff, and then they were probably pumping it in their mouth as they went by, snacking as Jesus was probably talking and they're listening to him. Just a few weeks ago, well, I guess a couple months ago now, my wife and I took a few days uh, and went hiking in the Grayson Highlands, and it was at the very end of blackberry season. We hiked up to Mount Rogers, and for about a mile along the way, there were blackberries all along the path. And I ate a lot of blackberries. I did not stop. I just picked them as I went. And it was something like that that the disciples were doing here, going through the field. This was a common practice, and in fact... It was a practice that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, in verse 24, was actually very explicitly uh, not forbidden in the law. That I mean, you're not allowed to, of course, go into somebody else's grain field and start harvesting their grain. That would be theft. But you are allowed, according to the law, to pick heads of grain as you go through. That's what the disciples were doing. Now, the Pharisees see this. Notice they're watching Jesus now. They see this and they object. Why do they object? What is it about this behavior that is objectionable to them? Well, it's the first words of verse 23, one Sabbath. There's the problem. It was on the Sabbath day. That is the seventh day of the week. That is Saturday, according to our calendar. This was the day that Jesus and his disciples were walking and talking and plucking grain and, and eating it as they went. Now, what is the Sabbath? We have some sense of it in our, in our time. But to, to get a, a biblical perspective on the Sabbath is important for us to understand what's happening in the text here. You may remember way, way, way back, about as far back as human history goes, in Genesis chapter 2, we read this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all 
his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God blessed the seventh day of the week. He made it holy. In other words, he made it set apart. He made it a special day. And through all the years of God's instruction and revelation to his people, through all of, of Israel's history and Jewish tradition, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, is sort of holy ground. You know, a lot of world religions have holy ground. You know, Hinduism has the Ganges River. Uh, there, are, there are locations that are considered holy ground. Well, in Judaism and in Israel, it was really a day that was holy ground. It was the seventh day of the week. This was a special sacred day set apart, and it was set apart specifically for rest and for remembrance. Remembrance of God's creation, remembrance of His providence, remembrance of His good work. You've got you've to think of the, the benefit in God's people every seventh day stopping what they were doing and giving their attention to the fact that they had been made by God in heaven and that He had provided for them. There's a real benefit there. As Old Testament history goes on, the Sabbath takes on this quality of remembrance, not only of God's creation and His providence, but also of their salvation, His deliverance. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is after the Exodus, beginning with verse 12, Moses is giving the people the Ten Commandments again, but this time, on his instruction about the Sabbath day, he includes this in verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It's not just a remembrance of his creation and his providence. It's a remembrance of that deliverance that he gave them. It was of great benefit to the people, of course. There's a practical need to rest. We all have that need. And there is a spiritual need to reflect in faith upon who God is and the fact that He cares for us. And it is not we who provide for ourselves, but it's Him who provides for us. It's not just all that we see that matters, but it is Him that matters. In Exodus 23, in reference to keeping the Sabbath command, the Lord says it's important that His people keep the command to honor the Sabbath so that they might be refreshed, is the word that He uses. That they might be renewed in it. And of course, this is an important command in the life of God's people. As I said, it is one of the Ten Commandments. And its observance becomes symbolic of faithfulness as God's people continue through the generations, and it is a central factor in the prophets. When they are calling the people back from apostasy and from spiritual declension, again and again they're saying, you have forsaken my Sabbath. Now, that's a, a general idea of what the Sabbath is all about. The Pharisees, as we've been talking about uh, already in the Gospel of Mark, uh, their interpretation is part of the issue here. Now, the Pharisees noticed uh, what's evident here in the text that the Sabbath commandment includes uh, not working. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your servants, your donkey, nobody's working on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees asked the question, it's a reasonable question, well, how do you define work? What exactly is work? And what falls under the umbrella of work and therefore what is forbidden on the Sabbath? With this question and their desire that we've talked about already to, to add secondary commandments on top of God's explicit commandments in order to guard the Word of God in that way, the Sabbath command, and specifically that part commanding us not to work, that question, it begins to grow and sort of twist and swell into all kinds of secondary requirements attached to it. All kinds of, of secondary commands forbidding them from working in various ways. Now, some uh, rabbinic literature from this time identifies 39 different classes of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. Things like uh, plowing, butchering animals, building, doing construction, that sort of thing. Uh, but, but all of these categories of work in human tradition here are amplified to the point of just outright silliness at times. Uh, they, they were specifically forbidding people from sewing more than one stitch. You could sew one stitch in an emergency, but two stitches, now you're working, not on the Sabbath day. You could write one letter, but you cannot write two letters, because if you write two letters, you're towing the line of working, and that's forbidden on the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to tie and untie knots on the Sabbath day, because in doing so, you might accidentally start working, right? These are the kind of commands that are being added. They're like barnacles on a ship on this, on this fourth commandment that God gives us, and it starts growing. And they attempted to identify every imaginable scenario and giving people detail of how they were to obey the Sabbath day. There, one fascinating one that I came across in studying this last week is that one rabbi had instructed people that if a building collapses and there are people in the building collapse, you are allowed to move rubble enough to find out if the people are dead. If they're alive, you can get them out of the rubble, but if they're dead, you have to leave them till the next day to deal with them. You're allowed to do just that much and no more. Right? And there were all kinds of scenarios like this articulated. Again, kind of like barnacles added on. And they started to teach in such a way that they communicated to people that to break one of these secondary sort of restrictions that they'd come up with was the equivalent of breaking the commandment itself. This is how they get in the situation that Jesus tells them a few chapters later in Mark chapter 7 that there he condemns, condemns them for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, for teaching their own traditions as if it was the commandment of God. Now, <clears throat> let me just make a side note here. Uh, it's, it is very easy for us to, to point a finger at the scribes and the Pharisees and say how ridiculous telling people not to sew two stitches and acting like that's God's commandment. 
Remember, friends, it is entirely possible for us to be tempted to and even begin to add our own secondary commandments onto God's commandments and teach them as if they were the law of God. God has given us very clear instruction about a variety of things, and it's important that we recognize what He has instructed us about, what the law of God actually says, what the commandments say, and not go beyond that. It's tempting all the time. For example, those of us who are parents, God has instructed us to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord to discipline them in a way that is right. The specific ways that you and your family decide that that commandment is to be implemented in your household so as to be in keeping with God's principle there, be careful that you don't start taking those very specific applications and applying them to everybody around you as if God had said those specific things. Some of you here in this room, you homeschool your children because you believe it's pleasing to the Lord that you do so. and You're trying to keep that commandment. Remember that there is no place in the Scriptures where God tells us specifically to homeschool our children. Be careful that we not begin judging other people by what is not actually the commandment of God, but what, what is our tradition, and we begin to conflate the two. You see what I'm saying? God has called us to be good stewards of the money that we have. And there are a lot of you that have spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you are stewarding the resources that God is giving you well. Do not begin to take the specifics of your own stewardship and apply them as a rubric for judging other people's righteousness as if your particular methods were the commands of God. You've got to be careful about that. We end up drifting into the thinking of the Pharisees and teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, this is what the Pharisees were doing. And this interpretation led to their objection. They're looking at Jesus and his disciples walking through this grain field. They're harvesting grain, right? They're, they're plucking it. That constitutes harvesting by their standard. Harvesting is working. They're working on the Sabbath day. They're violating the fourth commandment. They're in sin. That's how the math works. Now, of course, that's not what's really going on, right? That's just one of their own overwrought traditions that they're applying to him. I mean, it is, it is silly what they're doing. I mean, imagine, imagine, so I said a few months ago, my wife and I were hiking in the Grayson Highlands and I was picking blackberries. Imagine if my wife, who's on the trail behind me, sees me picking blackberries and she says, oh, hold on a second. I thought you said that you weren't working today. I thought you said that you were going to take the day off so that we could have some quality time together. And here you are harvesting blackberries. It'd be ridiculous, right? I mean, of course I'm not harvesting blackberries, but that's the very thing that they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of doing. They want to undermine him in any way they can here. They are scraping for accusations to make. Now, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus gives an answer. Verses 25 to 28, he responds to them. He, he first reminds them of a story from their history that they should have been well familiar with, and then he identifies a couple principles. Again, we're only going to look at the first principle this morning and come back to the second next week. But the first thing he tells them is this, this story. He reminds them of an event that took place in the Old Testament involving David and some bread. And it's a very short story, so we turn there. If you're quick with your fingers, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 21, 
and it's the first six verses, and it reads like this. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. There was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. Now this, this little account is from those years when David was on the run from Saul. David's sort of desert fox years where he's, he's, Saul's tracking him all over the place and he's hiding in caves and he's got this band of guys with him. And David and his men are in need of something to eat. And they go to this priest and they are given the bread of the presence, which was bread that was specifically set aside, explicitly forbidden in Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24 to be eaten by anybody but the priests. And yet David and his men eat this bread. Now, just as an aside here, I'll mention there is much ink spilt about the fact that Jesus uses the name Abiathar, and in 1 Samuel we read the name Ahimelech. Um, there are legitimate reasons for that, and I would be happy to discuss that with anybody here at length if you would like to. In fact, we can discuss it at great length if you would like to. It is not a conflict in the Scriptures or a contradiction. Would, but rather than spend time here this morning doing that, I just want to tell you, ask me if you want to talk about that. I would love to. I have several books about it. Um, so... The point is not Abiathar Ahimelech. The point is that in, an, in the situation of extremity, David and his men ate the bread of the presence, which is a much more significant infraction than just rubbing some grain, heads of grain between your hands and eating it as you go. And yet the Pharisees had not condemned David for his behavior. Now, one obvious implication here of the story that Jesus is telling is that the Pharisees and the scribes were being absurdly petty. I mean, they were nitpicking to a ridiculous degree, which, by the way, brothers and sisters, is and has always been a characteristic of religious hypocrisy. Absurd pettiness and nitpicking to a ridiculous degree. There are a number of larger principles, though, that we can draw from this text, but I want to give our attention specifically to the two that Jesus himself identifies in the first one this morning. Principles that apply to the Sabbath, but also apply in a broader fashion to all of God's commandments. So look first today at verse 27. Having told this story, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding. In their effort to elevate the Sabbath and to teach the people to honor it, 
the Pharisees had gone so far as to elevate the importance of the Sabbath even above the importance of the people that were called to keep the Sabbath. They'd begun acting as if the Sabbath itself were the ultimate concern of God, as if that's what he really cares about is his Sabbath, as if he'd created the Sabbath first, and then, as an afterthought, created man so that there'd be somebody around to keep his Sabbath, as if the Sabbath itself were God's priority. Now, this, of course, is a twisting of the truth. This is an inversion of the real order of creation and the giving of God's commands. As I read to you from Genesis chapter 2, it's on the seventh day that God gives the Sabbath command. It is on the sixth day that he makes man and makes him in his image and makes him male and female as the pinnacle of all of his creation to be crowned with glory and to glorify God. And then he creates the Sabbath day. And he creates the Sabbath day, as we already talked about, for their good. He gives them the Sabbath day as a gift to guard them, to guide them, to bless them in their life. The Sabbath is for them. Now, that principle applies not only to this fourth commandment, but to all of God's commandments. All the commandments of God were not given that we might be submitted to them for their sake, but they are given to us for our good. Human beings were not created for the purpose of commandment keeping, as if the commandments were first and some independent eternal standard, and then God made people just so his beloved commandments would have somebody to do them. Now, the commandments were made to serve human beings. They were given to bless the human race for our good. We are his priority, not the other way around. The principle here is that God gave his commandments for us, for our good. And listen, understanding that, friends, has a huge impact on our understanding of the commandments and our relationship with them. And what I mean by that, let me illustrate it this way. I, I was at the Samaritan Inn this last week. as a, a day shelter here in the Roanoke Valley. And many of you are familiar with the Samaritan Inn. There's a rule at the Samaritan Inn. If you come into the Samaritan Inn, you can get coffee, you can get lunch. You're not allowed to take your styrofoam coffee cup outside. You have to drink it in there. You're not allowed to take it out. Right? And of all the rules at the Samaritan Inn, like the no cussing, the no drinking, the no fighting, the styrofoam coffee cup rule is like the controversial rule. You know, this is the one that ends up people blow up about it all the time. Because you start to walk out the door with a styrofoam coffee cup, and Georgia, the lady that runs the Samaritan Inn, she says, stop right there. Don't take that cup out that door. You know, and they turn around and say, you know, the equivalent of, Mom, you know, like, why, why can't I take this coffee cup out? And people, and they fight about it all the time. Now, as if this rule to not take coffee cups outside is just some bizarre, arbitrary rule that Georgia has come up with simply to provoke and irritate people that come to the Samaritan Inn. Well, the reason the rule is there is because they didn't used to have that rule, and people would take coffee cups outside and they'd throw them on the ground. And the neighbors started to complain about the Samaritan Inn, and the city looked into shutting them down because there's garbage everywhere. We don't want a homeless shelter in the middle of our neighborhood. Look at all the garbage that's created by it, right? So, hence the no coffee cup rule. The no coffee cup rule exists so that the Samaritan Inn can continue, so that the people can be blessed by it. The rule is for them. 
It's, Georgia did not wake up in the middle of the night and say, how can I annoy them today? Ah, they love those coffee cups. I'll take them all, you know. Well, likewise, friends, God did not wake up and say, ah, how can I provoke people? How can I lay heavy burdens on them? I, I'll give them Ten Commandments. And I'll give them Ten Commandments on big stone uh, tablets, and I'll make sure there's lightning crashing behind it so they're all terrified by this burden. Now, there was lightning crashing behind it, and they were on stone tablets. But even in the text in Exodus 20, it's very clear these commandments are given by the grace of God for the good of God's people. It's important that we as Christians understand this about God's commands, that this is the place and the purpose of His commandments to bless us and to help us. They're for us and not us for them. Even us who, who are very experienced here in the church and know the gospel, it is easy for us to begin to think of God's commands as burdensome, as restrictive, as a hindrance to us, as something from which we should desire to be liberated. Again, we imagine the Ten Commandments as this oppressive burden, but that is not the way the Scriptures speak about the commands of God, is it? One text that you might know well is 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We sometimes mistake justification by our own works for the actual commandments of God. Attempting to justify ourselves by obedience to God's commands, that's a burden. That's an intolerable burden. That's an impossible burden to bear, and that will crush us and send us to the grave. But the very commandments of God themselves, the specifics of His instruction to us, they are not the burden. They are a call to be like Him and to walk like Him and to walk willingly in fellowship with Him. Christ came to free us from the burden of justifying ourselves by the law. We spent over a year studying the book of Galatians together as a church. And you remember verse 16 of chapter 2. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Christ came to free us from this burden, this impossible burden to bear of justifying ourselves by works of the law. He himself kept the law. He himself went to the cross to die a sinner's death in order to free us from our sin. But friends, it is our sin that he freed us from. It is that debt we could not pay. It is slavery to sin and death and condemnation that He freed us from. He did not come to free us from the good blessing of God and His will expressed in His commandments to us. Jesus Christ said the very same thing in John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In that very well-known passage in Matthew chapter 11, 
the Lord Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the intolerable burden is not the commandments of God. It's not the yoke of Christ. That is a blessing to us and a trustworthy guide and a help. It is the need to justify ourselves by the commandments that is the burden. And when we think about that, I think we can see it. It's easy to think about God's commands. You think about the Ten Commandments as shackles on us. But when you think more specifically, I mean, which ones are the problem? Which ones are so burdensome to us and that we want to cast off? Is it the commandment not to murder people? Is that the one that is intolerable for us to bear? Is it the commandment not to commit adultery? Is it the commandment not to steal? No, friends, it is disobedience. It is sin that is the burden and the slavery. Listen, if every single person that lived in the Roanoke Valley tomorrow, Monday, obeyed the Ten Commandments from sun up till sundown, imagine that, right? Every one of them, sun up to sundown. Would the Roanoke Valley be a place of gross oppression tomorrow, or would it be a place of profound freedom? I think we would be stunned by the result if such a thing were the case. It's important that we know this about God's commands. I mean, a lot of the young people here in the church, you're going to be going to college, you're going to be going into the workforce here soon, you're going to have people communicating to you all the time. The commands of God are burdensome and intolerable. Religion, Christianity is intolerable. Cast off the fetters. But that is not the reality. That is not the truth. It's important that we remember this and we value the commands of God accordingly. That we consider not the, we don't consider the Old Testament irrelevant and the commandments of God irrelevant. And we don't consider efforts to obey them and even to discipline ourselves to obey them as legalism. Rather that we remember His commands and remember that they are a call to be like Him who made us to be godly to walk with Him willingly in His ways, in the light and the truth and love and mercy. And in that way, remembering that His commandments are a blessing to us. They are for us, not us for them. Even the fourth commandment, and I'll, I'll, I'll end by saying this, this fourth commandment to obey the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. There are many variations of views of how this commandment is to be understood and how it is to be applied in the life of the Christian. Even here in this church, there's a variety of views about that. My understanding is that this Sabbath commandment, like all the commandments, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because He Himself is our Sabbath rest. He who lived for us, and died for us in union with Him. We know God's providence and God's salvation. We'll talk more in detail about that next week. Having been united with Christ, we've entered an unending Sabbath rest with Him. In Christ, all of our lives are a sort of Sabbath. All of our lives are rest from labor and remembering His deliverance. When we remember that and believe that, and turn to Him in faith and remembrance and rest, we honor the Sabbath that way. Every moment when we flee to Christ in faith and cling to Him, it is a Sabbath for us in that way. 
Because He is our Sabbath and He is always with us and will not leave us or forsake us. And in Him we've entered rest. Now that's, that's part of what we're doing here right now. We've gathered together on this Sunday morning to worship God together. We've set aside, in fact, a day of the week to come together to stop everything else and to worship Him and to remember the Gospel and to enter His rest. But we honor the Sabbath not only when we gather here on Sundays, but also when we worship Him in our homes. When we sit down as a family and set aside everything else for a few moments dedicated to remembering the gospel and resting in Him and worshiping. We do so when we do so by ourselves. When we wake up in the morning or in the evening before we lay down and we remember the gospel and devote our hearts to Him in prayer and consider His word. I mean, Friends, we've covenanted together as a church in that way. Remember a few weeks ago when we received the Irwins and Jonathan Ward as members here, we, we reaffirmed this covenant together that we will be people who do not forsake the assembly and gathering together, who do not forsake private devotions, who in that way do not forsake the Sabbath that we've been called to. Now, we've covenanted together to do that. Is that legalism? Are we laying burdens on one another in making a covenant like that? No. Because the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. The commands of God are a gift to us. They're a blessing when He calls us to rest in Him and worship Him. Friends, don't think of these things as burdensome, as if a heavy yoke has been put on you when God calls you to worship Him when He calls you to gather with His church, when He calls you to pray, when He calls you to worship with your family, don't act as if this is some yoke that is intolerable. No, the commandments are for you. And I want to encourage you this way. This week and in the coming weeks, as a church, we're busy with the holidays. There's all kinds of things happening. There's all kinds of people visiting. There's all kinds of events that we've got to go to. Our schedules are packed. Friends, make time to worship the living God. Make time to worship Him here with the church. Make time to pray. Make time to gather with His people. Make time to dedicate attention. Make time to remember the gospel and rest in Him. And don't think of that as a burden that you have to bear. But remember that it is a gift that God has called us to worship Him in that way. Remember it is a gift that He has called us to rest in Him and to rest in Christ. And so we do so gladly rejoicing because Christ Himself is our Sabbath rest. Now we'll come back to this topic next week. But for now, let's stop there. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown us in giving us your word and in giving us your commands. Well, help us not to be twisted around in our understanding. Help us not to act as if your instruction to us is something that, that we should fear or run away from. Help us instead, Lord, to gratefully receive your word as what it is and to submit our hearts to it willingly. Help us also to be a people, Lord, who know how to rest in Christ. Know how to...
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.